The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's dive deeper into those headlines where we get the uh, rough transcript of the uh, president's call with the Ukraine. We welcome Alex Wayne, uh, Bloomberg News, based in Washington, D.C. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Just give us your kind of initial response to kind of what we're seeing here across the tape. Well, this, uh, this transcript uh, really supports the allegations that have been made that uh, the president pressured Ukraine to investigate a, a political rival, Joe Biden. Uh, the president brought up yeah. Biden in this phone call, mentioned his name repeatedly, and asked uh, the, Ukra- the new Ukrainian president to reopen a, an investigation that had gone dormant uh, back in uh, 2015 or so uh, uh, involving a company tied to uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. So is there any sense, Alex, that there was a threat of withholding aid to Ukraine unless yeah. these, uh, this investigation did proceed? The, the, there's no explicit threat like that in, uh, documented in this phone call. But, but let's back up just a step. Uh, before this call, according to people familiar with the matter, uh, the president froze that, that military aid to Ukraine. It happened uh, at least a week before the call. Uh, now, now the, the president of Ukraine gives no indication in the call that he's aware the aid has been frozen. At one point, he, uh, early in the call, he thanks President Trump for uh, U.S. support for Ukraine and says he's, uh, he's almost ready to buy more uh, Javelin anti-tank missile systems from the United States. Uh, the president responds by saying, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. And he then asks uh, Zelensky to uh, locate this DNC server that was hacked uh, during the, the 2016 campaign. We're not sure what the president was getting at there. Um, but that then leads into a conversation about uh, other investigations Ukraine could conduct on the president's behalf, including, uh, including the, the Joe Biden probe. Yeah, right now we're looking at S&P, uh, right now the S&P trading lower, uh, sharply lower, on the heels of this transcript release. I'm just wondering, uh, based on what we've heard, based on the law, is what's in the transcript enough to give further ammunition to the Democrats in their impeachment push, or is this sort of uh, edifying for President Trump that he didn't necessarily uh, verbatim threaten to withhold aid in return for uh, further investigation? So, so impeachment is more of a political process than a legal process. Uh, the Constitution says the president can be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, but leaves it to Congress to decide what those are. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if the president violated a law here. Uh, we are told that the Department of Justice conducted an investigation um, into whether uh, the president violated campaign finance law uh, by soliciting the president of Ukraine's help uh, investigating Joe Biden, and DOJ determined that he didn't. Uh, but we're also told that at the time DOJ conducted this investigation, they were not aware that the president had frozen military aid to Ukraine. 
uh, ahead of the call. Um, so, I, you know, I, I would say this is squarely within the realm of things that uh, Congress would scrutinize. Uh, one of Congress's highest responsibilities is to conduct oversight of the executive branch. And uh, I think if any president had, having, had behaved like this in a phone call with a foreign leader, um, it, it, it would very well uh, rise to the level of, uh, of investigation by Congress. So is it the sense here, you know, the next steps, I guess, is probably the question. We have the president, I believe, is going to have a press conference today uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, any expectations here about the tact he might take? Well, he's been, he's been very defensive so far about his call with uh, Zelensky. He's called it a perfect call, said he did nothing wrong. I don't know why he calls it a perfect call, given what is right here on, on the page that I'm looking at, showing that he... He asked a foreign leader to investigate a political rival. Uh, that's that's not a normal thing for a president to ask of a of a, of a foreign a foreign leader. Well, actually, uh, Alex, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, is there a precedent for this? I've never heard of one. I've I've never heard of something like this happening before. Uh, I'm not aware of a, of a of a previous president, at least in modern U.S. history, uh, asking a, a foreign leader to uh, to get involved in, in a U.S. election. So one of the issues that, that uh, Tim O'Brien, Bloomberg opinion columnist, uh, put in a column yesterday was the big issue is to focus on the fact that don't focus necessarily on whether there was a quid pro quo uh, asked by President Trump, but Pat, focus more on the fact that the call was made to ask a foreign government to interfere uh, in an election. And that in and of itself is uh, an impeachable uh, or could, could support an impeachment process. Is that the thinking within Washington or does the quid pro quo really need to be proven? Uh, no, I think I think Democrats uh, definitely feel like there doesn't have to be a quid pro quo, that, that simply inviting or, or asking a foreign leader to, to uh, invo- get involved in, a, in an election um, is, is enough on its face. But, but let's, also, let's also kind of, you know, you could, almost, you could almost say that the quid pro quo is already established. The Ukraine is dependent on, on American military aid. If the president of the United States calls up the president of Ukraine, and ask him to do something. There is a, there is, even if he doesn't make the threat explicit, there is an impl- implication that U.S. aid may be at risk if the Ukrainian president doesn't agree to do whatever the American president is asking him to do. So, so the quid pro quo is, is there. It's implied, even without the president explicitly threatening the Ukrainian president. So, Alex, what's the next step here? Well, the next step is that there, there's going to be a lot of work on, on, the, on in the House of Representatives um, by multiple committees um, to, to apparently assemble a, a case for impeachment of, uh, of the president. And is there uh, any support by Republicans behind there is, that? There is none so far, but, uh, you know, at least, at least one Republican, Mitt Romney of, of Utah, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, has, has raised some concerns about what happened in this phone call with the president of Ukraine. Uh, and has said he would reserve judgment on on any consequences until after he, the the facts had were were gathered. And so we're we're gathering those facts now. Uh, we We think that by the end of the week, we'll also uh, have uh, this whistleblower complaint. Uh, an intelligence community whistle whistleblower. Uh, made a complaint to the the Inspector General the, for the Intelligence Community uh, based on, uh, in part, this call between Trump and the President of Ukraine, uh, as well as uh, other events, uh, and uh, and and that complaint has been demanded by by Democrats in, in Congress. Alex Wayne, thank you so much, Alex Wayne, White House uh, reporter, based in Washington D.C.
certainly there is a lot of interest in uh, President Trump's phone call with Ukraine, the transcript of which was released. Joining us now to discuss Justin Sink, Bloomberg News White House reporter. Justin, have we gotten any responses yet from either uh, the White House, Republicans or Democrats uh, in the wake of the release of this transcript? Yeah, so uh, I think obviously a lot of Democratic uh, lawmakers are expressing outrage over uh, what they see as the uh, the president acting inappropriately by asking uh, Ukraine to participate in this investigation of, of Joe Biden. Uh, the president and his allies, though, have kind of insisted throughout this process that the president didn't do anything wrong. They say uh, that it's normal operating procedure or within the bounds of acceptability for the president to uh, push for an investigation when there's possible wrongdoing. And they make the argument that the the five-page transcript shows that the president didn't necessarily link uh, his freezing of foreign aid or even foreign aid generally with the Biden investigation, although he does discuss both topics on the, on the call. And Justin, isn't, you know, isn't simply the fact that the, the president asked, uh, President Trump asked the uh, leader of a foreign nation to uh, potentially interfere in a U.S. election, isn't that in and of itself uh, problematic and maybe even enough to support impeachment? I, I mean, that's certainly the argument that, that critics of the president are making today and, and that, uh, you know, Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, have uh, said are, are grounds for impeachment. Now, the, the president says and, uh, and has defended himself by arguing uh, that there was possible misconduct by by Joe Biden. That hasn't been sort of substantiated. All of our reporting indicates that uh, Joe Biden made the call to to get rid of uh, a prosecutor in Ukraine, uh, not based on his son's financial interests, but uh, based on the policy uh, within the Obama administration. But but the White House is going to make the argument that that this was just sort of uh, an attempt by this White House to to address possible corruption. Have we heard anything from Republican leaders? Uh, Republican leaders so far have have sort of downplayed the release of this and uh, are, are making the argument that Democrats are sort of uh, singularly focused on impeaching the president. It's it's a very similar um, approach to what we heard in the aftermath of uh, the Mueller report coming out, where again the president engaged in some conduct that um, was certainly outside the the sort of norms that we we expect, but didn't rise to the level of illegality. And and so they they're making the argument that Democrats are uh, pushing too hard for this impeachment issue. So, Justin, many observers have suggested that the more damning uh, piece of evidence may be the uh, whistleblower's report per se. Is there a sense of when, if that will be released and will it be released in its entirety? Yeah, so we're not entirely sure when the public will get a, a chance to look at it or if the public will get a chance to look at this whistleblower report. But there is an expectation that, that Congress, which is holding uh, hearings tomorrow on this issue, will, will at least in a classified setting be able to review uh, some, if not all, of the whistleblower report. So uh, we, we may get additional details that can help give a, a bigger picture of, of what the Trump White House was up to and what the president was up to uh, beyond this, this specific call transcript uh, as soon as tomorrow. Justin, is there any precedent that we can look to in terms of how the president's phone call uh, went or, or didn't go according to the way it should have? I mean, in other words, uh, does the law or, or precedent offer any guidance for us? So uh, another interesting kind of piece of, of information that came out today is that the Justice Department, uh, because of this whistleblower um, 
flagging concern over the call, did do a legal review of it to see if, if President Trump had violated campaign finance law uh, as, in, as he encouraged them to look into, into Joe Biden. The Justice Department ultimately con- concluded that there was not, um, uh, that the president didn't break the law, that they didn't see anything necessarily improper. But um, a senior administration official told us that that, that that did not include a consideration of the freezing of Ukraine's aid. And so uh, I think a, a lot of critics of the White House are also going to point out that, that the Justice Department is, of course, um, run by Attorney General Barr, who's mentioned in this transcript and who is a close political ally of the president. Justin, what's the sense of next steps here? Yeah, so uh, I think we're looking at two big kind of events on the very short-term horizon. One is the president is actually meeting with the Ukrainian president uh, later this afternoon. So I'm sure he's going to field questions and and talk about this then, and especially at a a press conference scheduled for 4 p.m. at the end of the United Nations uh, later this afternoon. So we're going to hear a lot from the president later today as he tries to explain his actions. And then, of course, we've got these congressional hearings going forward uh, in the next couple of days where, where more information, particularly from the, the mouth of the whistleblower, may, may start to come out. Justin, if we look at the market response, initially there was a leg lower in the S&P and NASDAQ. That has bounced back since. So basically people in the market seem to be suggesting this is not that big of a deal, or at least it doesn't move the needle materially more toward impeachment. Does that cohere with what uh, people who you speak with seem to think? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's obviously a lot of political attention on this entire uh, controversy, but the basic math hasn't changed here in Washington, which is that Republicans continue to control uh, the United States Senate and that there's nowhere near the votes that you'd need to actually remove Donald Trump from office. So while Democrats might want to sort of send a political message that they find this behavior to be unacceptable, uh, something that would actually remove the president from office and thereby potentially change policy and, and impact markets uh, is not something that, that uh, seems likely at this point. Justin Sink, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Justin Sink is a Bloomberg News White House reporter uh, giving us the latest reporting on the call summary that was made public between uh, the, of the call between President Trump and the president of the Ukraine. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Global Business Forum here in New York City at the Plaza Hotel, uh, hobnobbing with the the world's leaders, frankly, as well as the leaders of the major corporations, as well as the largest asset management and managers in the world. Among them, Dylan Pile, a chief executive officer of Temasek International, uh, which manages uh, $235 billion. And we actually had an opportunity to sit down and speak with him. Let's take a listen. We want to start with the theme of the Global Business Forum, which is sustainability. And I'm wondering how much you have shifted your investments with ESG sorts of parameters of sustainability in mind. 
So this is a journey that we've uh, started, we started about three years ago. And now we're looking at it in a very holistic manner. There are three parts to it, I would say. First is uh, we put in place an ESG framework for each of the investments that we're looking at right now, from the time that we, it first comes into the pipeline to evaluation to eventual execution. And it's very clear in our minds that unless it passes an ESG framework where either we've identified problems that can be resolved or the company is largely in line with the framework, we won't proceed with an investment. Now we have 600 investments in Tomasic, so we're now extending the framework into our existing investments so that we see improvement in whatever we can do with respect to ESG factors. The third element has to do with uh, what we're trying to do uh, for sustainable uh, investments. That includes sustainable living, for example, alternative proteins, anything to do with water efficiency, to look at resource efficiency. Uh, the second is to consider the issue of decarbonization, how we can go about reducing the carbon footprints of the companies that we control, reduce our own carbon footprint, try to see how we can influence companies in which we have minority shareholdings to think about reducing their carbon footprint, with a view towards seeing uh, how our carbon footprint for the entire portfolio can be halved by 2030. And the final thing is to look at sustainable solutions. That includes uh, things like uh, environmental engineering solutions, which are relevant in the context of Asia, it includes sustainable finance, because so much of what Asia needs is infrastructure. And, the, and there's always a tension between affordability and what you need to do for climate change. And so we think that the uh, key part of this is to make sure that there is a form of blended finance that's brought to the, to the needs of the region. And we are looking now to see how we can uh, play to that. So the companies that you've invested in, how typically, how receptive are the management teams and the boards to some of the, your sustainability and in, in ESG initi initiatives? Increasingly so, because I think they see the winds of change. Uh, their customers are asking for it. They have to look at their production methods to see whether it's in line with what their customers would expect them to do. Uh, so most of them realize that they have to start their journey. Some of them further along the process, some are obviously thinking about how best to approach it. So I think these days we find that as we talk to them about this, as much as we talk to them about you know, their business strategies and so on, we're getting a more receptive uh, audience with these companies. Right now, um I want to shift gears a little bit because sure. we've heard a lot about the groundswell of cash just mm -hmm. pouring into uh, a lot of markets, and particularly private markets around the world. And Temasek, yeah. I know, has been involved in that. I mean, you yeah. have to be, as you seek out bigger returns. How concerned are you about some of the valuations that you're seeing in markets today? So I think the first thing we have to bear in mind, we're in a low inflation, low interest rate, lower growth, lower return environment. So your traditional uh, instruments for returns, for example, fixed income and so on, are not going to give you the same returns that you're, you're used to. So more and more money is going to alternatives. Sovereign wealth funds are shifting more and more of the capital in terms of asset allocation to alternatives. So there is a lot of capital looking for yield and better returns. Now, there may be too much capital out there looking at the same <laughs> range of investments that we're looking at. Uh, and are we going to reduce our investment return framework? My answer is no. Uh, do, does that mean that it's going to be very difficult for us to source investments that we need to see to get a better return? The answer is yes. So valuations are a key part to that. And I'm, we're more than prepared to walk away. We feel it doesn't meet a return threshold for the long term. So give us the sense of kind of the environment out there. I know you, you guys invest uh, uh, very aggressively around Asia. Uh, given the trade tensions that we continue to see between the U.S. and China, what are you seeing in, in your part of the world and in, in some of the opportunities that you're looking at? So the number one destination for capital in the last five years has been the United States. Number two destination is China. Yep. So U.S.-China <laughs> issue is not exactly a friendly one to us. Um, 
But look, we have to take the world as it is. You know, we have to find our way through the difficulties that uh, that the current relationship uh, puts uh, forward to all of us as investors. And we have to find a way in which we can continue to look for good investments in the areas that we are focused on, whether they be in the United States or whether they be in China, or for that matter in Europe and India and elsewhere. What's the one area that you've been adding, uh, you're, uh, adding to your allocation the most? Technology. So I'll, maybe I'll put it this way. We have five focus areas. Technology is one, life sciences, biotech is second. Uh, financial services, non-banking is the third, so insurance, fintech, payments, asset management. Consumer, because it's such a big thing with, with rising affluence, is the fourth. And the fifth, actually, which is the most recent and the most exciting for us, is agri-biosciences. Give because us an example of agri-biosciences. So, for example, you know, we're investing in possible foods. Okay. You know, so alternative proteins, uh, I think you all know about it. Beyond meat. <laughs> well, we chose Impossible Foods over Beyond Meat. Okay. Time will tell. Okay. Well, probably there'll be two winners, maybe more. Right. Um, that we are looking at ways in which uh, we, get, we look at vertical farming, urban farming. Look at ways in which uh, there can be substitutes for herbicides, pesticides, where less chemicals can be used. So just real quick here, is there any area you're completely avoiding right now? Uh, well, I don't think we're going to be investing in fossil fuels. <laughs> as you continue and with the path to sustainability. Yeah, and ergo, that's why uh, I'm sure you're at this uh, conference. Dilan Pillay, thank you so much for joining us, CEO of Temasek International, giving his thoughts on uh, his the global investment uh, of Temasek and some of the investments in sustainability and ESG and, and how that factors uh, into their investments. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Dilan Pillay. We spoke to him earlier this morning, uh, CEO of Temasek International. Some very interesting commentary here as we're here at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum conference here in New York. Right now, let's shift focus to WeWork. It lost its chief executive officer and co-founder, Adam Newman. Uh, its bonds, it does not have stocks because it has not been able to do its initial public offering at the value that it would like to do it or anywhere close. Uh, its bonds trading down uh, significantly uh, as we look ahead to the future. Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us in our interactive broker studios. Shira, how much does the departure of Adam Newman really change the landscape for WeWork? I mean, it, it does, look, it does change things, right? Uh, because he was one element, a significant element of both WeWork's success and ultimately its um, kind of self-dealing and bad management oversight and business model. So changing horses does matter, but at the same time, everybody who enabled WeWork to get to the point where it is today is still there. That includes Newman himself. He is a significant shareholder, remains a significant shareholder. He's going to be on the board, right? He's a non-executive chairman. All the investors are still there, the bankers, the lawyers, uh, all the executives. The company is now being run by these two insiders. So... WeWork has a lot of questions to answer about both its business model and the structure of the company, and that's being those decisions are being made by more or less the same people who were there all along. So, Shira, one of the key figures for me is Masayoshi San uh, of SoftBank. Um, is there any sense of how committed he and the fund is to this company, given some of the turmoil we've seen? I think that's a key question, and I think we still don't really have a good answer. Uh, as to what made Sone and SoftBank apparently turn against WeWork. 
literally at the last minute, right, in the last um, few days, it seems. And I, I at least noticed that in WeWork's statement yesterday about Adam Newman's departure and the changes in the management team there, SoftBank was not mentioned. They were not quoted. So SoftBank has not said anything. But look, this company needs money urgently, and SoftBank is certainly one of the more obvious candidates to provide that financing. And there was some reporting today from Bloomberg and others that SoftBank is looking at potentially additional um, loans and an equity infusion, either from SoftBank or from uh, real estate. Shira, how much does a shift in leadership hurt potentially WeWork? I mean, we're talking about Adam Newman as being a highly flawed leader. Certainly he was, but he also led the expansion of the company and had the vision. uh, And there was a certain cult of personality. Is it a liability that he's leaving at all? I think right now, the we work as we know it is over, and whatever emerges is going to be a very different kind of company top to bottom, right? I don't think they're going to be able to continue this kind of breakneck office, office expansion they've had for the last few years under Newman. This kind of sprawl of the company into all these ancillary uh, we-related activities, right? A, a, a kid's school, a coding academy a um, communal living apartment complexes, that may no longer be viable. And those were things that were part of Newman's vision for the company. And I don't think they're viable anymore. And so that means that Newman may not be the right leader if WeWork going forward is going to be less ambitious and less WeWorky. So, Shira, I know there's some financial issues here in the relatively near term. I think they uh, were going to get some a big funding round, a debt round, a credit facility uh, from a bunch of banks, but that was contingent upon an IPO. Now it looks like the IPO is shelved, at least for the near term. So what's the sense of the near term liquidity of this company? Yes, WeWork needs money. It needs it soon. It is on roughly a $3 billion annual burn rate this year, cash burn rate this year. And that meant it was going to need money by next year. And as you said, the plan was to sell several billions of dollars in stock in the IPO. And there were loans, loan agreements in place for $6 billion that was tied in part to the completion of the IPO. And you're right that right now it doesn't look like that an IPO is, is going to happen, at least not in the next few months. So, yeah, the company is going to need cash. Again, there's been reporting that the company may significantly pare back expenses and cut uh, its workforce. That will certainly ease the cash burn, although that would be a significant blow to the company and those employees as well. And, again, there's been reporting that the company is talking about additional loans and, and uh, equity sales to kind of keep the company going. Shira, I think this takes us to a broader conversation about valuations because WeWork sort of uh, comes after the Uber issues and as a ton of money pours into tech startups pretty broadly. And I'm just wondering, what are you hearing from people in terms of how much venture capitalists are sort of gut checking themselves and what they're willing to accept in terms of private valuations for some of what they're investing in? You know, the, the venture capital industry has been in a really weird place the last few years. I think almost everybody who's in the business of backing technology startups will say that there's too much money sloshing around chasing too few good companies, and that has made valuations get too big and companies get funded 
uh, excessively. But no one is no one is willing to say that they're part of the problem, right? That it's always the other guy. And the other guy uh, recently has been SoftBank with this $100 billion vision fund that they've poured into companies like WeWork and Uber and others. So there is definitely too much money sloshing around, chasing too few good companies. And, um, and yet, I don't know that anything is going to change in the near term because of what's happened at WeWork, because there's always this tendency to say, well, WeWork is kind of a one-off. That was a SoftBank thing. They overinflated this company, or Uber was a one-off thing. Everything is a one-off thing. That's somebody else's fault. Uh, I certainly hope that in the corners of, of Silicon Valley, where venture capitalists live and work, that there's been some rethinking about what they personally need to do to prevent companies like WeWork from happening again, whether that's overcapitalization or entrenching too much, too much um, uh, power in these founders without oversight. Sure, Ovidey, thanks so much for joining us, talking to us about what is the latest on WeWork. Sure is a Bloomberg Opinion technology columnist uh, for Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.